Learning to dance is what all of Europe was doing in the first part of the 20th century, and London was providing public spaces through the establishment of the Thé Dansant and dinner dances at smart West London, sorry, West End hotels, where everyone <coughs> who had means, of course, and the wherewithal, was able to dance in public for the first time. If Isadora Duncan had, as some people say, democratised dance, <coughs> her arrival in London, uh, a less known uh, figure called Maud Allen, can be said to have played a significant role in establishing the pre-war dance craze in England. Um, and that's Maud Allen in a very characteristic one very characteristic pose. Unlike, unlike Duncan, who performed for the most part to narrowly based socially elite audiences in, in the private houses um, of the rich, Alan performed in public spaces, notably from 1908 onwards at the Palace Theatre to very wide audiences, which include, included, um, <coughs> and importantly it included, the Prime Minister's wife, Margot Asquith, who was one of her biggest fans. Um, it was Alan's repertoire, which included this tunic-clad, barefooted Greek-style dance, uh, as well as, of course, a much more controversial, and perhaps some of you know this better, um, Salome uh, dance. Um, it was this rather interesting repertoire that led to a collective of ballet schools being set up, and particularly to Greek-inspired movement classes being taught um, at schools, uh, and very much part, as indeed Alan herself and Duncan uh, as well uh, were involved, um, the dance classes were as much about women's health reform as they were uh, about trying to get in touch with, with anything authentically Greek. In the theatre, the meaning of the play was no longer deemed to reside exclusively in the word, but in a rhythm, and a rhythm that now encompasses word, body, set, and very often now, the score. With this new fascination with the moving, moving body and performance spaces came a widespread interest in the singing-dancing chorus of antiquity, and especially the singing-dancing chorus of Greek tragedy. Although in the first part of the 20th century, dancing menads, um, who came out of these schools were ubiquitous and um, I can give you that's the me classic menadic uh, pose the sort of back um, uh, the backward bend um, and that's um, actually uh, significantly not in <laughs> not in anywhere on the south coast in England uh, that's down uh, in Antibes in France and it's a, a, a school that to some extent still exists today um, run by the very interesting woman Margaret Morris who was um, in a long-term relationship with J.D. Ferguson, the, the Scottish painter. Now, so this dancing um, like a minad um, was, in a way, part of a, a kind of wider um, uh, movement that many young women, usually, of course, upper-middle-class uh, young women, participated in it. But despite this, or maybe even because of it, dancing choruses uh, were particularly challenging for British theatre directors. The rhythmic spell remained more an aspiration than a reality, 
Um, uh, in Britain, that is. But what is striking is that this aspiration, and really this is my point today, was remarkably short-lived. The new corporeality in the British theatre became increasingly associated with moral decadence and, above all, dangerous cosmopolitanism, as it was dubbed. Um, and, and, of course, this becomes particularly acute uh, once anti-German feeling became endemic as hostilities within Europe became an increasing likelihood. Serious theatre issued corporeal performances and ancient choruses once more um, in the wake of this uh, anti-corporeality. Uh, once more they became ossified um, as most choruses uh, in, in performances of ancient drama had been right up until this opening, this nomadic turn, if you like. And in the aftermath of the First World War in Britain, the chorus of Greek tragedy no longer proved central to discussion of tragedy. And in productions of Greek drama, the chorus similarly retreats to the wings. Um, and in some ways, of course, that is understandable because we have now new kinds of morally compromised choruses as uh, that are beginning, of course, to assemble within the political arena under the direction of the emergent fascist European leaders. Now, I'll just begin a little background, uh, the theory that shapes this monadic turn, if you like, and, of course, the two important developments uh, which contributed to changes in the status of the dancer in the last part of the 19th century um, and, and, of course, that is important because um, the, the dominant Christian resistance to dance um, had really been the norm and became particularly acute in the 19th century in Britain. The first, of course, most important uh, theoretical uh, um, model is Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy, 1872, where Nietzsche identifies the singing, dancing chorus as the wellspring from which Greek tragedy originally developed, that led to a new interest in dance. For the first time in the long history of the reception of Greek tragedy, the chorus is now accorded a primary and central role within the action. Despite, of course, the fact, the well-known fact that Nietzschean scholarship was damned, um, uh, particularly in um, uh, Britain, but equally in Germany in the classical um, establishment, as you will know, Nietzsche-inspired insights into the ancient world were readily adopted beyond the academy. Nietzsche, number one, influence. Number two, in Cambridge, turn of the century, and under the influence of the new discipline of comparative anthropology, the second most important development to lay the foundations for the rehabilitation of the figure of the dancer in Britain took place. This is the so-called uh, the work of the so-called Cambridge Ritualists, uh, among whom most prominent and most uh, the, the intermediary figures, if you like, between the academy and the wider public were Gilbert Murray and Jane Ellen Harrison. For the Cambridge Ritualists, dance was a form of primitive prayer, and in their view, Greek tragedy had grown out, grown out of the ritual dances held in honour of the god Dionysus. And if the essence of tragedy could be located in the hitherto neglected ancient chorus, the paradigmatic chorus became those intoxicated, monadic dancers 
who danced in honour of Greek tragedy's patron god, Dionysus. Both Harrison and Murray, as I said, were key mediating figures, both in their desire to communicate their ideas widely. Playing at being Greek had become fashionable a little earlier, in London in particular the opening of Liberty's store uh, in the 1880s, when wearing Greek-style um, clothes uh, was, was, was particularly uh, fashionable. But now in the early 20th century, after two decades of dressing like a Greek, uh, now moving like one, or thinking one was moving like one, um, especially like a Nenad, was fashionable. By 1913, dance, a cultural art form that had struggled for recognition since in its own emergence from the shadow of opera in the early 18th century, is finally receiving due recognition. Um, That summer, sorry, the summer of 1911, following the Ballet Russe's first London season, according to the Times, London has come of age. Alas, many pleasant illusions have been shattered thereby, or the moon, many idols tumbled from their pedestals, but we've grown up terribly fast and lost the power of enjoying things that pleased our callow fancies only a month or two ago. London, like Paris, the previous season was now under the rhythmic spell, mesmerised by the set, the costumes and the sheer physical energy of the ballet russe's highly charged corps de ballet. Even Rupert Brooke in 1912 could say, I'd give anything to be a ballet designer. And of course, what he's thinking of is uh, the extraordinary designs of Leon Bass. Um, When Max Reinhardt... um, (coughs) produced an Oedipus Rex in Covent Garden in January 1912, a production that itself was bound up with, 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 with censorship, and in a way, um, which is another story, and maybe we'll leave that till later. But this production, <coughs> we see through Reinhardt, the Austrian-German um, uh, uh, theatre director, his broader European concern to emphasise the sheer physicality of the performer. Reinhardt's landmark production had premiered in Berlin in, in 1910 and had been performed throughout Europe. Um, and it was the first staging of an ancient drama in the modern world to incorporate a singing and dancing chorus. As we've seen, it was by no means um, simply fortuitous that Reinhardt's chorus should appear at this time on the stages of Europe, when the performing body, especially the dancer, was, of course, now very much under the spotlight. Reinhardt was renowned for his direction of chorus scenes, and he put those skills to enormous uh, test, as you can see. There's a vast crowd of extras of over 100, um, and uh, a chorus of 20 Theban elders that, um, uh, of course, as you know, is in itself an extension of the ancient chorus of 15 and or 12. Few who saw this production failed to be impressed by the sheer scale and the grandeur of the movement patterns. The play began with a clarion call and the entrance of half-naked torch uh, bearers running, streaming through the darkened circular performance space. 
And of course, I don't say, this is a Nietzschean-inspired production in which the individual, the Apolline here, represented by uh, um, John Martin Harvey, the actor playing Oedipus, um, this Apolline figure, is his suffering is seen to be held um, or taking place, enacted against a background of a general Dionysiac suffering of the chorus, the crowd. Two months after this production um, had opened at, at Covent Garden in London, Granville Barker produced uh, a production of the Iphigenia in Tauris in Gilbert Murray's uh, translation. Before this point, uh, Barker had no idea and, and, and regularly put on record, he had no idea how to get the chorus right. But because of the Reinhardt example, he went to Berlin to see um, rehearsals that Reinhardt um, was, was conducting in the Circus, Circus uh, Schumann, where it was, was originally staged. Um, Barker had a vested interest. His wife, uh, Lina McCarthy, was taking the part of Jocasta in the London uh, production. So Barker had each stage watched this production very closely. And the Times critic, um, this is Barker's wife, uh, sorry, it's not a very good, um, he's taken from uh, the American tour, but that's her, Lena McCarthy as Iphigenia. Um, the Times critic significantly singled out the chorus of this production, um, this Iphigenia in Tauris, for its rhythmic dancing of the captive women, which sadly I can't find a picture of. Now, Ballet Russe's rhythmic method, combined with Reinhardt's choric method, led Barker to new ways of representing the formal characteristics of Greek tragedy, especially its chorus, especially within the confines of the proscenium art theatre. Like Reinhardt's surging crowd, which entered the auditorium and ruffled some Edwardian sensibilities. In Congarn, they removed the first few lines of the seats, and so the naked torchbearers literally... Um, touched these um, <coughs> Edwardian um, <laughs> spectators. Um, Barker's audience also in this production um, witnessed and to some extent um, were palpably aware of a rapid and tumultuous entrance of soldiers who came in again from the sides instead of the wings. In 1912, uh, following the success of this production and, uh, sorry, the Reinhardt's Oedipus and the um, Barker's Iphigenia, we have the second Ballet Russe tour. Um, and I think you all know the, what was the centrepiece of that tour, and it was the La Frémédie d'un Faune, choreographed by Nijinsky, who, who is here as the Faune to Debussy's score. Here, the morally dubious dimension to this new rhythmic spell was abundantly shown as the Faun concluded his 12 and a half minute piece with an um, orgasmic crescendo that he conducts upon the scarf of one of the limbs. So for, those who, <coughs> for those who'd been brought up on the idea that dance was inherently morally problematic, there was further evidence here that decadence and louche cosmopolitanism were clearly at the heart of dance. Cosmopolitanism, of course, brought with it other anxieties on the political front on the eve of the First World War. And this brief awakening, usually referred to as the Edwardian summer, in Britain to other European ideas, 
that had begun during the early years of the first decade of the century was very shortly to be eclipsed entirely. Sometime in early 1915, after several years of direct involvement in the Cambridge Greek play, the classicist John Shepherd of King's College, Cambridge, concludes the preface to his translation of Oedipus Rex with these words. If you doubt whether in these days Greek tragedy still matters, you may learn the answer in Paris. Now, owing to the disruption of the war years, Shepard's own translation of the Oedipus didn't in fact appear in print until 1920. Some four years after the French, uh, the star of the French production he's referring to, and the, the star is Jean Monnet Sully, who died um, just before, um, in 1915, at the very beginning of the First World War. For Shepard, Munesuli's performance was proof that Greek tragedy still mattered, because for him, the formal beauty of this production demonstrated to him that Greek drama, not bolstered up by sensationalism, has power to hold and move a modern audience. The French production, in Shepard's view, was in stark contrast to what Shepard called the lavish, barbaric, turbulent 1912 Reinhardt production of the Oedipus Rex. According to Shepard, Reinhardt's actors, and I quote, raged and fumed and ranted, rushing hither and thither with a violence of gesticulation, which in spite of all their effort was eclipsed and rendered insignificant by the yet more violent rushes, screams and contortions of a quite gratuitous crowd. Now Shepard wasn't alone in objecting to the vast crowd of extras that we heard about in the London production, as I've mentioned. But what offended Shepard was that Reinhardt's production was a kind of total theatre, assaulting the audience's senses on every level. For Reinhardt, as was the case for the pioneers of modern dance, who both admired and in turn influenced his work, movement, as opposed to the voice, was the prerequisite for the performer. But whilst this new corporeality uh, initially engendered amazement within the audience, it also eventually brought moral outrage and scandal. Um, neither Isidore Duncan nor Maud Allen was able to sustain their high status as serious dancers in the post-war world, and this was in no small measure on account of their own personal tragedies. But I think their eclipse from high cultural circles was also symptomatic of the Anglo-Saxon world's retreat from what is perceived as cosmopolitan corporeality, which Reinhardt's theatre had so demonstrably embodied. The dancing menads, especially those surrounding Maud Allen and her Suffolk circle, had always courted controversy and provoked the male establishment's anxieties. She'd been inspired by Reinhardt's work, notably his production of, of Wild Salome, which he had seen in Berlin in 1902. Now, however Greek were many of her dances, it was her vision of Salome for which she became most celebrated. Another different picture of her, Salome. <coughs> Yet even here, Alan's admirers insisted on her ability to dance an oriental dance with a freshness that was deemed Greek in spirit. Arnoldian Greek <coughs> note. And this Greekness that she brought to an Oriental dance removed any of the dangerously, the wildian, exotic 
from the Oriental mm -hmm. subject matter. But however loudly her defenders sought to emphasise an Anglo-Saxon purity in her dance, Alan's performances, both on account of their slightly ambiguous venue, and it's important to note that the Palace Theatre never shook off its, its image on the edge of Soho, and they're slightly ambiguous, or, and often in certain uh, circles, uh, uh, direct or very evident association with Wildean transgressive sexuality, meant that these performances were never, ever free from taint. Moreover, as had been the case with the British premiere of the Strauss Electra, and now with the premiere of the albeit censored Strauss Salome in 1910, Allen found herself on the fringes of what was increasingly seen to be cosmopolitan and more particularly German-Jewish decadent voluptuary. Later during the war in 1918, when the Dutch-Jewish, often forgotten, but became increasingly significant, theatre critic Jacob J.T. Grime when Grimes sought to organise a tour of a production of Salome at the Royal Court directed by his wife and starring Alan in the title role, there was a vehement right-wing and anti-Semitic backlash. The production was mounted to serve as a propaganda exercise sponsored by the Ministry of Information designed to promote British culture. And the fact that what was deemed a Jewish production should be seeking to represent British culture caused outrage in certain circles. In an excoriating article entitled The Cult of the Clitoris, published in 1918, the independent right-wing anti-Semitic Member of Parliament called Noel Pemberton Billington attacked Allen as a representative of the sexual vice of the cosmopolitan, now read German-Jewish world, which was seeking to undermine the healthy English nation. The imputation was clear. Allen was being publicly labelled a lesbian, and the earlier rumours and hints in the American press of an intimate relationship between her and the Prime Minister's wife made her especially sensitive to the slander. Foolishly, and despite much advice to desist, Allen insisted on suing Pemberton Billington, and in 1918, she was forced to endure a shameful ordeal, during which she was cast as the disloyal, idle, and pleasure-seeking woman who had both precipitated and was now undermining the war. Central to the defence case was the claim that Allen's vision of Salome fostered a cult among transvestites, and with the testimony of the now-married and respectable 40-year-old former lover of Wilde, Lord Alfred Douglas, whose piety attendant on his recent conversion to Catholicism appeared to make him an even more reliable witness, the jury heard that the play written by Douglas's former lover was fundamentally immoral. By continuing to enact such immoral subject matter and by her own alleged personal conduct, Allen was damned by association and lost her claim against Pemberton Billington. Her reputation never recovered. Her public besmirchment was in many ways both a cause and a symptom of what became a widely shared view of Greek dance in Britain as being in some ways morally comprom compromised through its association with cosmopolitan, for which I insist we read German-Jewish 
culture. I'm going to conclude. When the Cambridge Don, John Shepherd, who I'd mentioned, when he recoils from the lavish, barbaric, turbulent aspects of the Reinhardt production in his preface in early 1915, his response is symptomatic of what we can now see as a general retreat from the continental German performance culture in Britain at this time. Furthermore, an increasing association in British culture of dance with decadence, which culminated in the trial of, of Maud Allen, was clearly deep-rooted and of long-standing. The post-war British classical establishment's apparent lack of interest in the ancient dancing chorus, in marked contrast to its dogged focus on the ancient tragic hero, may well be a product, I suggest, of this crude, late Edwardian association. Barker had finally managed to find a way in 1912 to stage his chorus through Reinhardt's example. The post-war world disapproved of efforts to emulate the Reinhardt model. The Greek dancing continued under the auspices of something now called the Association of Teachers of the Revived Greek Dance, where menadism was so thoroughly domesticated that it could now be invoked as a natural ally to British folk dance and found itself on the side of the Aryans in current racial theory. In Europe, the Reinhardt model was abused, as many of you know, and deformed by Nazi ideology and caught, of course, on film in Riefman Styles, um, aesthetic in the Nuremberg Stadium. And the ancient singing dancing chorus doesn't re-emerge in performances of Greek tragedy on the British stage until the final part of the 20th century, when once again anthropological and intercultural theatrical experimentation intertwine to produce vibrant inca uh, incarnations of the ancient chorus. Thank you.